There's a Jewish tale of a rabbi who, overcome with humility, throws himself before the altar of the, of the temple and cries out to God, I am nobody! I am nobody! The cantor, observing the rabbi, is so moved by the rabbi's humility that he joins him at the altar crying, I am nobody! I am nobody! Then the janitor, sweeping the floors, hears their cries and, likewise moved, joins them, crying, I am nobody! I am nobody! And the cantor turns to the rabbi and says, Look who thinks he's nobody. I wasn't sure how that story would go over, but when I realized Brian, Brian was back, I knew we were in fine shape. Welcome home. I had my first collision with humility, or rather, my lack of it, on the New York State Thruway in 1988. I was driving west to perform a concert upstate when I stopped at a rest area for lunch. As I reached for my wallet to pay the cashier, I glanced upward and caught a glimpse of someone in the security monitor. He looked strangely familiar. With horror racing up my spine, I realized the figure in the monitor was I. Shooting downward from behind me, the video camera captured a high-contrast black-and-white image of the crown of my head. <laughs> dark mass of hair surrounding a lurid white spot. A spot where evidently there was less hair. Visibly less. A bald spot. Most of you never knew me without my bald spot, but believe me, there was a time long ago when I sported a luxurious growth of hair. Back in those days, I, I thought I was a pretty good-looking fella. My mother told me that. My grandmother told me that. And my not infrequent inspection of myself in the mirror only confirmed their good opinion. As a boy, I was pudgy, bespectacled, awkward, and unpopular. I hated it. When adolescence miraculously transformed me into something more closely resembling the popular image of attractive manhood, I was thrilled. Thrilled and addicted. Addicted to a particular picture of my physical self. Addicted to my self-image as a handsome guy. The reala realization that I was losing my hair shattered the spell. Not that I couldn't be handsome and bald. Look at Yul Brenner, Isaac Hayes, Patrick Stewart, Vin Diesel. <laughs> Sex symbols, all. Of course, they have shaved heads. When was the last time you saw a movie idol with male pattern baldness? When a male movie star goes bald, he shaves his head, gets a wig or transplant, or turns into a character actor. 
At 35, like many singer-songwriters on the folk circuit, I still had hopes of crossover success, signing with a major label, becoming rich and famous, and, of course, using my wealth and fame to help others and make a better world. <laughs> what major label would sign me with a bald spot? I, I, I became irrational with anxiety. I actually called for a brochure from Hair Club for Men. Which, as soon as I got it, I threw in the trash in embarrassment. I, I, knew, I knew it was all vanity. I had to face the ugly truth that I was vain. Gradually, finally, I, I calmed down. I began a long, slow surrender. Surrender to my hair loss, to my lack of specialness, to my commonality with every other human being on earth. I am, after all, an ordinary schmo. And that's okay. Growing up in my family, it was not okay. I always had the feeling we were supposed to be better than the rest, smarter, better looking, with more refined taste. No one ever said so in so many words. That would be in bad taste. But you couldn't miss it in the way my elders talked about other people. As I grew older, I realized this sense of superiority was pathetic and absurd. But old habits die hard. Recently, I was brought up short again by C.S. Lewis. Having loved his Chronicles of Narnia, I, I picked up Lewis's Mere Christianity, his classic of Christian apologetics, still a bestseller after 60 years in print. When I quote it this morning, I retain his original gendered language. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular, I read, and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The vice I am talking about is pride or self-conceit. And the virtue opposite in Christian morals is called humility. Humility. The word sounded old, musty, something muttered by a medieval monk. If you want to know how proud you are, Lewis continues, the easiest way is to ask yourself, how much do I dislike it when other people snub me, or refuse to take any notice of me, or shove their oar in, or patronize me, or show off? The point is that each person's pride is in competition with everyone else's pride. It is because I wanted to be the big noise at the party that I am so annoyed at someone else being the big noise. Two of a trade never agree. So writes Lewis. Busted! I was busted! I hate it when other people talk too much, like they know everything. How dare they? I'm the one who knows everything. I decided it was time to ponder more deeply this thing called humility. 
Some of you may have noted the irony of my preaching on humility. We, we teach what we most need to learn. Virtues are not much in vogue these days, humility perhaps least of all. We are a nation of strivers and competitors, assertive to the point of aggression. Debating Al Gore in 2000, George W. Bush called for a humbler foreign policy. The next thing you know, we're invading Iraq. Our popular culture feeds on fame, which makes a public obsession of every celebrity twitch and pimple. Athletes agonize over respect and disrespect until who says what to whom, who does what victory dance on what special spot on a playing field loom as large as the final score. It's not whether you win or lose, we now know. It's how you taunt your opponent. Unitarian Universalists are not often noted for our humility. Our two movements, Unitarianism and Universalism, were founded two centuries ago on the postulates, respectively, of human genius and human immortality. <laughs> Many of us think even better of ourselves today. <laughs> As our seven UU principles ignore both love and God, we shouldn't be surprised that humility also goes unmentioned. For those of us who have endured pietistic religion, humility has, has the ring of rebuke, like gratitude or discipline. Humility sounds like something we should have but don't, so we flee to preserve our self-esteem. It's true that humility imposed from without is humiliation. But when brought forth from within, it's liberation. Humility isn't easy to define. My dictionary does so only negatively as the absence of pride or arrogance. But we know humility when we see it because it puts us at ease. I used to work for someone brilliant, charismatic, larger than life. In every, in, in every conversation, he seemed to be saying, look, I'm the smartest guy in the room, and I want you to know it. Not long ago, I met his successor, equally brilliant, but full of humility. He seemed to be saying to me and to everyone, I respect your intelligence, and I'm eager to learn from you. Modesty we can practice in speech and conduct, but humility goes deeper. It's not something that can be willed, only aspired to. In her book, Humility Matters, Benedictine sister Margaret Funk writes, humility is what others see of our purity of heart. It is the sacred art of simplicity, fashioned in the soul. At the soul level, humility demands that we let go of our attachment to things, people, status, outcomes. Ultimately, humility demands that we release our identification with the ego self, defined by thoughts, feelings, 
and actions. So while humility is not a practice, it requires practice. Lots of it. The practice of prayer, meditation, kindness, compassion, generosity, self-discipline. All practices from which humility may quietly grow. While our seven UU principles don't acknowledge humility, the seventh, I think, holds the key. Respect for the interdependent web of all existence of which we are a part. Because when we realize our interdependence, we understand that neither credit for success nor blame for failure is ours alone. It belongs to all. When we feel related to every being, how can we aggrandize ourselves or belittle others? If we are all one body, how, how can the ear judge the thumb or the elbow mock the knee? Humility is not self-deprecation. It is self-emptying. A scholar once visited a Zen master to learn about Zen. Serving tea to his visitor, the master filled the cup to overflowing and kept pouring until the scholar cried out, Stop! Can't you see it's full? Like this cup, the master replied, You are full of your own theories and opinions. How can you learn anything unless you first empty your cup? Humility is emptying our cup. I would turn this cup upside down for dramatic effect, but it actually has ginger tea in it, so it would make a mess, but you'll, you can imagine it. French philosopher André Comte-Sponville puts it elegantly. Humility is the effort through which the self attempts to free itself of its illusions about itself, and since these illusions are what constitute it, through which it dissolves. Therein lies the greatness of the humble, who penetrates the depths of their penit who penetrate the depths of their pettiness, misery, and insignificance until they reach that place where there is only nothingness, a nothingness that is everything. Comte Sponville is, is an atheist. Mystics would call that everything, God. For the mystic, humility means to empty oneself of all that is not God. They say we can't experience God when we're already full of ourselves. As C.S. Lewis observes, a proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Now Lewis emphasizes that we don't owe humility to God. We owe it to ourselves. We must not think pride is something God forbids because he is offended by it, Lewis insists, or that humility is something he demands as do his own dignity, as if God himself was proud. He is not in the least worried about his dignity. Rather, he and you are two things of such a kind 
that if you really get into any kind of touch with God, you will, in fact, be humble, delightedly humble, feeling the infinite relief of having for once got rid of all the silly nonsense about your own dignity, which has made you restless and unhappy all your life. With this relief, with this relief comes freedom. Freedom from the need for praise and the fear of censure. Freedom to act on principle and in discernment. Freedom to love generously and unconditionally. As the Bhagavad Gita put it over 2,000 years ago, they live in wisdom who see themselves in all and all in them. They are forever free, who have broken out of the ego cage of I and mine to be united with the Lord of love. This is the supreme state. Attain to this and pass from death to immortality. Theist or atheist, humility becomes us when we say anything at all about God, a concept that defies speech. Indeed, in any controversy, humility calls us routinely to admit to our adversary, you know, you could be right. As Korean Zen master Sung San used to say with a kind of holy idiocy, don't know. Don't know. Do not imagine, warns Lewis, that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. When we stop thinking about ourselves, humility sneaks up on us and blesses us unawares. And the instant we notice it, it has already vanished. So let us act in compassion, speak with kindness, give out of generosity, strive for justice, and do everything in love. Perhaps someday someone might pay us the rare and beautiful compliment of saying, there goes a truly humble person. And should we ever be so favored, let's pray we don't hear them. Amen. And blessed be.